Hi, I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with Michelle Rokind, the founder and partner of Mexico City-based firm Rokind Architectos and Senior Vice President of Architecture at WeWork. Michelle is probably best known for designing Cineteca Nacional in Mexico City, as well as the Foro Boca Concert Hall for the Boca del Rio Philharmonic Orchestra. In addition to his architecture practice, Michel is an avid long-distance runner and longtime drummer. With everything he gets involved in, Michel puts at the forefront a deep spiritual concern for and engagement with humanity. Let's get him on the line. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you, guys. Always always a pleasure and uh, always interesting to, to all these conversations that we have, not in podcasts, that now we're going to have in a podcast. So interesting to, to now share some thoughts on what's happening today. It's such a complicated moment. What's at the top of your mind right now? Wow. Uh, oof, yes, as you, as you mentioned, like the, it's been super complicated, but it goes back to it goes back to our humanity always. I think that we're always trying to address this in either something that we studied, something that we read, something that we did, but we forget to come back to basics. So I think that everything that's going on, the moment we are right now in terms of vulnerability is an incredible moment to go within, you know, and to really understand what we've done as humans uh, in our own uh, world, in our own process, but how do we connect to everything that's going on right now? Because if you look at it, at the end of the day, it comes back to being human and and our humanity is being disrupted by many, many different things around us. And, and, And that's what worries me the most, that we're forgetting to take actions based on our humanity and, and trying to put a, a system that will kind of reframe where we need to go instead of connecting with our hearts and our vulnerability, you know? Mm. Yeah. And from your perspective as humanist, but also as architect, I'm wondering, how are you viewing this pandemic? What is it revealing? And I think it's also worth noting that you're a very global practitioner. You're someone who in in what might be called normal times, travels a lot and has always had sort of this global worldview. So understanding that as well, what do you think this is revealing about architecture, about humanity, our planet and globalization? Well, I think that first of all, I mean, it's, it's important to understand what, uh, where we were coming from, what we were doing, and then this, this slowdown, no? the speed of things where we were getting and where was it getting us to? So I think that eventually with coronavirus or without coronavirus, this was going to show up somehow. I mean, this was going to be yeah. something very evident. And I, I think that it's very important that it happened now in terms of, I mean, I'm not trying to minimize the, 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 what's going on with the deaths and, 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 and people and, and of course a recession and people losing their jobs. But again, it's coming back to the basics. It's coming back to saying, what have we done? Where did we go wrong? First of all, you sit down and you, you self-quarantine and you think of what can I do for my profession? And you start thinking, at least me as an architect, no? what can I do as an architect? And it's like, first of all, let my people work from home. Second, if I have any people that are helping me service-wise, let them go two or three months home paid so they don't have to worry about the money. So make sure that everybody's safe. Now that everybody's safe, is there a way that I can react as an architect to understand what 
what's the way of doing the best propositions or, or ideas, not based on fear, but based on the idea that how can we reconnect to these values that to me are super important, no? which is about understanding our sense of community. Because, I mean, we all talk about community, but then everybody is like, no, me, 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 me. I want to do things on my own and I want to do this for me. It's like, wait, if we really want to engage community, what can, first of all, this moment of introspection of where can I learn to be better? I mean, in this slowdown, I call it kind of this cleaning house effect. You're in your home and you're cleaning your home and you're taking away all the shit that's around you. Like, why did I buy this? Why do I have this? What is this box full of? So you clean your house, but that's also a metaphor of clean your own house inside yourself. What's going on within you that you haven't even paid attention to all these boxes that are filled with stuff from the past and all these things that we call it shadow work, no? that you want to go within and clean all the dark pieces within you that really disconnected you and that didn't make you aware of how we got here and to see if you were part of the problem or you're part of the solution. All the opposites, but it's like there's things that you do that are part of the problem and there's things that you do that are, that are part of the solution. So I remember immediately that the first thing I told my, my, the people in my office was, okay, guys, we need to work on these projects because thankfully we have work and the clients want to continue with the projects. But second of all, let's think how we can help the community. How can we be of service to others while we're doing this introspective work to really come out there and help the gastronomical community, the service community that's cleaning the streets? I mean, anybody that, that is more vulnerable than we are, because we have to understand that it is a privilege to stay at home and it is a privilege that we still have work. So how do we help the others that are less privileged than us? And again, this big question of what does community mean to us and how can we help in terms of strengthening the bonds of community and understanding that the importance of the other, no? Yeah, and your job is to sort of create the tools to do that. I mean, you, you, I know that in the current projects you're working on, you're really thinking deeply about how does this building serve the immediate area and the city that it's being erected in. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk about your immediate space. You know, we're spending so much time at home right now and what has your be experience been like staying in that apartment? Probably the most time you've ever spent in that house. Totally. At one time. Totally. And what are some of the, the insights that you've drawn from being in that space for the past couple of months? What, what does it mean? You know, we talk about neuroaesthetics. We talk about how spaces shape us. Can you tell me a bit about what you've thought about from being in your own space for the last couple of months? I mean, totally. I mean, first of all, acknowledging that I was living part-time in New York. So as soon as the pandemic started uh, becoming more relevant in, in the States, I, I wanted to get out because I wanted to come to Mexico to see my family because my daughter is in Mexico with my, with my ex-wife, Claudia, who's my best friend. And uh, so I said, I want to go back to Mexico because I want to be close to the family. So one of the immediate things is like, I think this is a, a great signal for all of us. Some, when something happens that is a signal of alert, we want to be close to our family. Mm -hmm. Everybody was working uh, from home anyway, so I could work from home here in Mexico. So yes, it's the first time that I've spent so much time in my house that I think it's, it's a crucial moment for everybody. It's, it's interesting as architects that we always wanted people to be aware of what a house meant. I think there hasn't been a better time than now, like acknowledging like what are rooms for? What is storage space for? What do I want uh, cross ventilation? What do I want sunlight? No, do I miss sunlight? Do I want a bigger window? So the consciousness of, of understanding a house today 
is much, much deeper than before. It's not just a status. It's not something that you want to aspire to have because this or that, or just a shelter or just a place of creating a family. It becomes something more, which I think is, is reframing how we use the house. Because of course we, in regular times, we normally don't use the house as much as, as we could use it. Now that we're spending more time, I don't think we're going to go back to leaving at eight in the morning and then come back at night to have dinner. I think we wanna, we're going to want to spend more time at home with our families. And, and that's going to be a way of, I call it a little bit of time hacking, where we're going to have to adjust on different schedules to spend more time at home working from home. And then you're going to go to the office. But I think it goes back, Andrew, to the, to the basic point of being aware of what you have. Mm-hmm. Who are you and what does your house represent? What are the things around you that build your house with your kids, with your family, with your wife, whoever we live with, but it's a reflection of you. And how does that reflection, is it coherent with you? Is it not coherent? Is the time you're living or how you've grown through life now reflect the same space? And this is what I was saying. You have to clean house. You have to clean house every single X amount of time because otherwise you start accumulating a lot of stuff that you're carrying forever. Well, I was going to say, I mean, your, your house is sort of a monument to the, or a roadmap to the life you've lived, the books you've, you've engaged with, the objects that you've cared about. Have you reassessed that? And have you noticed these things in a way holding you back? Or has it given you this opportunity to sort of revisit that timeline? It, it's, it's an opportunity to revisit that timeline because I think, it, at least for me, the experience has, has gone parallel. While I was cleaning house, I was doing inner work because I started meditating more, which I I love, but I never found so much time to meditate. I've been reading much more, which to me is fascinating, finding time to read with my daughter in the same room and just talk about whatever we're reading. But also, uh, I mean, nostalgic moments, I, I, I can imagine everybody has had these nostalgic moments of opening a box with old photographs or old whatever you have, like going through all these uh, crazy times. And, and, and again, thinking how you got here and what has made you the person that you are today. And with that person that you are today, what are your tools to be able to add to the conversation, to be able to be part of a a broader conversation, which is more intelligent because it's less driven by desires or power or ambition or other things and saying, I do want to have a world that is more in sync with humanity. I don't want to have a world where where we're going to be in these sneeze guards and masks and gloves and sanitizers. Like this is the world I don't want because we have to be very careful of all these ideas that are coming up as maybe solutions that are temporary might become permanent if we're not aware. And that's why I've always been raising a little bit my voice about not designing from fear or not making decisions based on fear. And I know we have to be careful and we have to be, we have to take care of ourselves. That's very different. But I always come back to, and I don't know if I'm jumping a couple of subjects, but I always come back to the exercise of uh, what happened after 9-11. So after 9-11, the way we travel became totally different. So I always felt like very, very badly treated when you go to the airport and they take your passport and the screening. So the whole traveling process became very, very different. And I think it could have been better solved if there there were more minds on the conversation of, yes, there was terrorism. We have to be careful, but we cannot lose our freedom based on fear. We cannot design things that now will be treated as criminals when we go to the airport because they think we we can be a possible terrorist. 
And again, I think there's ways of designing things that could be more subtle without losing uh, your, your freedom or independence and, and people don't need to treat you bad, which comes back to our humanity, which why do I have to intimidate you? So you break up and I know you're the terrorist. So uh, for one terrorist, how many thousands or millions of people? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the interpersonal relations, which got you know horrific after 9-11, but we also had things like the Patriot Act and sort of abuses of personal power and just absolute assaults on our sense of agency and privacy because there was a crack in the system where an opportunity could be taken advantage of by the forces that run our society. So how does this moment reveal how important it is that humanists, practitioners of the soft sciences and the arts, need a seat at the table in how we're rebuilding? Because we can't just be built by fascist forces, which is what seems to happen at moments like this. I'll just put a conversation out there, Andrew, that has to do with every time, at least from my perspective and coming from Mexico, that we had the earthquake two years ago, the, 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 yeah. the, the other big earthquake. Every time something big has happened for humanity, when we come out, when we went on the streets after the earthquake to try to help people that were still trapped in buildings, our whole society turned horizontal. Mm -hmm. Everybody was the same. There was not... It wasn't important if you were rich, poor, gay, black, white. I mean, it wasn't, everybody was the same and the value of a life was exactly the same. Everybody was outside in a very highly connected way before the government came in and did action, no? So our nature as humans is to interconnect. Our humanity is about connection, but we're always ripped apart by systems and by political ideas and by governments and by not recognizing the other. We're the same, even though we're different, but we're equally important because we are alive. We represent a life in this world at this moment. So, so my concern is that, that every time a solution comes up that has an agenda of power, of politics, of biopolitics, or whatever we want to call it, I know that it's sacrificing our freedom somehow. I know that we're going to lose something because there's a bigger agenda that is not connected to where we need to be connected. And of course, architecture, which is, you know, your main field right now that you practice in, is a political act. Architecture is political by its nature. And so when we're talking about empathy and an empathic approach to how we design our societies and how human beings need to relate to the other, how do you think this moment can allow us to to see in a new way in terms of urbanism. So we've spoken about the home, but from the perspective of the city, do you think that we're going to think about cities in new ways and what they provide in terms of social structures coming out of this? I think totally. And I think that that's a great example because as in the same manner that you have ideas that are based on fear and you're seeing like these whole boy in the bubble plastic things and oh, this beautiful restaurant now with these acrylic things, that I would definitely not want to go to one of those. You have this other side where you have uh, European countries where the government is saying, okay, you're, you have a restaurant and you need to open and you have 50 tables inside. I will let you open with maybe 10 tables inside, but come outside, use my street, which I'll close and I'll make it pedestrian. I'll make it super nice. So you space out the people. So we'll be careful. It's not fear. We're being careful. But then when people are outside on the street, you're now starting to hear like, oh, what if we close this street and make it pedestrian now? So the, the way of reacting in a more human aspect will create environments that are much better for 
our human connection. I mean, Milan was talking, I mean, this whole plan in Milan about uh, uh, doing a lot of vegetation now in the city center and, and, and contrasting. I mean, we're going to see more of how to come back to natural ventilation, being more on the outside as a way of connecting, even though the weather, because I think one of our problems was we isolated so much that we created these kind of atmospheres that we didn't connect. I mean, if it was super cold, it would be super hot inside. If it was super mm. cold outside, it would be super hot inside. And all these things about not really tempering with nature and what's out there and becoming a little bit more in sync has always been a way of disconnecting us uh, from, from even creating antibodies in our, in our body, you know? I mean, being out, outside where you're really feeling uh, what's the reality of the atmosphere on the outside. So I think cities will be transformed in terms of better ways of transportation or these time hacking where we not all work at the same time and some of us work from home and some of us then go to work. So there's less movement at the same time. There's all these big conversations also about why are we all vacationing on summer? Why does the whole world have summer vacations? When if we kind of said, well, maybe Asia takes the first two months and then Europe takes the next two months. First of all, the tourism will be all year round. Second, it will be more enjoyable as humans to go to a place where you can at least enjoy the space without being with hundreds or millions of people. And then it creates a more dynamic way of rotation, which I think is also interesting, no? Yeah. So, We'll start seeing transfer, uh, these transformations that, that to me, uh, I mean, we all know this concept about rewilding and a more solidarity future, no? where, we, where we choose to be outside, where we choose to connect with people, where we choose not to be isolated. Because I think there's three scenarios. No? The first scenario is where nothing happened and we went back to the same. And I think that the worst thing that, well, there's one of the worst things that could happen is like going back to the same thing, like nothing happened and we didn't even take advantage of this time. Yeah. The second one is like this technological totalitarian dystopia where it's these biopolitical things and confinement and, and, and control. And I want to know exactly wherever you are and you're going to have to have this vaccine with your microchip inside. So we control everything around you. And the last one where we really, and the one I prefer, of course, this solidarity future, where we come back to reconnecting to, to our values. What are our values? What, mm -hmm. what is society today? What is humanity today? What is my responsibility as a human? Mm -hmm. I really tell you, in these past uh, three months, I've thought less of the art as an architect than as a human, because to me, it's more about, I mean, what are our values? Take off your hat of whatever your profession is. Who's the person behind all of that that you study? Who's the person that I want to keep on hugging and I want to be close to my friends even more than ever because even rethinking now in this isolation process or in this quarantine, I really want to connect more. I, I, I understand the importance of our relationship to each other, no? Mm. Yeah, I mean, so much of what you've been talking about, this sort of fear-based design especially when it comes to COVID, why do you think so many firms are, are creating these quote-unquote solutions that actually are probably worse for the planet or worse for our humanity as opposed to actually like creating things that can benefit us as humans? I think we have to go back one step. And I think that the, mm -hmm. the going back one step, Spencer, is about specialization. Mm -hmm. Whenever we talked about specialization, we became so specialized 
that we didn't know we were part of the problem. We're designing uh, the cap of a bottle and we don't know if it has cyanide or if it has water. So we don't care because we're designing the cap. And we say, oh, I did the best cap possible. Look, it has this ergonomical shape that you can twist it. <laughs> yes, but if you don't take a step back and look what you're producing, you don't know if you're part of the problem or the solution. So our nature is to react. We're ingenious by necessity. We're ingenious because, again, coming back to the earthquake here or tsunamis, I mean, we'll always show that we're incredibly clever as humanity. The problem is that we're not, we're not taking these steps back to understand if what we're doing is a Band-Aid, a temporary solution, mm. no, or if it's going to jeopardize the way we really engage society. Because I, I personally want to come back stronger out of this. I want to come back to a place that's more human. And I want to come back to a place where our values were kind of recalibrated again. So again, it's not against the designers because they're going to design great stuff anyway. Mm. My concern is like, what are we designing it for? Yeah, we, we productize without conceptualizing and understanding the field because we're coming out of a period where we've been taught to productize. That's like what we value. How is this productized? How does this scale? How fast can you do it? Speed, scale, and product. And I think that what you're proposing is so important because what you're saying is, why don't we not productize for a second and just look? Yeah. There's also this whole other side of it with this sort of notion of like P architecture, where firms are basically creating renderings or things based on what's going to get clicks and not actually based on real world solutions. I was reading that that piece that Mick Manchin held, the blog written by the New Republic's architecture critic, Kate Wagner, where she writes about Corona grifting and P architecture, the, the notion that designers basically are creating these things as a means to get clicks on design and design boom. What's your response to that whole kind of notion of making things for attention? I think that it's interesting to get your ideas out there because I think that one of the most important aspects of, of social media at some point became that you could throw an idea out there and it would just go global, no? If it was a good idea or if it was a bad idea, you would know in two seconds that you're an idiot, no? So that was kind of the best ways to react. But I think that I would also take a step back and, and understand that the problem with throwing ideas out there because you're competing against which publication is going to happen and it becomes a PR uh, strategy, that takes us to a part where we become super competitive. The Korean philosopher Byung Chul Han, who spoke about survival society, I think that he was saying we have to be very careful because survival society is the survival hysteria that makes for an inhumane society. And what I mean by that is when we're competing all the time, when we're trained to compete and I want to be better than you, and what, it takes out, again, that humanity and that part of like, I'd rather connect with you and see what's the best solution for all of us instead of I'm the number one click in the zero or whatever uh, media, no? So I will never be optimistic about our, our capacity to design amazing things as humans. That's been our history over and over. I will be surprised our, of our incapacity as humanity to understand the bigger picture. Mm. And that again mm. comes back to this, my fear, because if people were worried about people fighting over toilet paper, imagine <laughs> when the vaccine is out. Yeah. People are going to go and kill somebody to just have the vaccine because we know that the vaccine, first of all, is going to reach the super rich people. And at the end, we're going to have it distributing to the poor people, which, again, creates this inequality, this unstable 
thing in the whole planet that we need to recalibrate in order for us to come back to a place mm. to start from. We don't have to have everything solved. And I think that's the problem of we don't have to have everything solved. I think we have to have a platform where we can grow. If we understand our basic values, that's enough to re- mm. even start reconsidering how we should do things. So, so again, when you start saying, Andrew, about we need more humanitarians, we need more sensible artists, we need a sociologist, anthropologist in the conversation besides the scientists and besides the, the, the financial people and everybody else, because if we don't talk about humanity and reconnection and values yeah. and w- what does it mean, even the representation of death, that's, that's crazy because if death is not close to me, I don't give a shit. No, if it's somewhere else, it's not my death, it's not my family, what do you mean? We're dying and the people dying of, of COVID-19 right now, to me, it's a sacrifice for all humanity. And if we don't honor the people that are dying in the most profound and beautiful way, saying like, I might not know all the people that are dying, but you represent a very important moment in time for us to recalibrate our humanity. Yeah. And I'm super thankful that I'm not the one who's right now in the hospital sick and dying, but I'll, I'll really make sure that I honor your death. It's not a name on the list as we saw in the New York Times, no? Again, it's like, what's happening with our disconnection of, of the other? Who is the other, no? And what does it represent? So we would have to take it all the way down to education. We, we need to re-educate ourselves to understand how we are no different. I mean, we are different mm-hmm. in many ways, of course, culturally and where we come from in languages. But again, we all would want to have these ideals or principles of, or, or responsibilities as humans in the planet, which I think haven't been rethought. Yeah. So much of what you're saying, Michelle, it goes back to this idea of just wholer thinking and actually problem solving as a means of, of addressing real world issues. And we haven't brought up yet the climate crisis, which I think is something that has to be discussed in the context of this conversation. How much are you thinking about that as a designer, but also just in terms of your own mind? All the time, because I think that that's what got us here. That's the problem. I mean, there's a lot of people talking out there that if we all were not eating meat, this would have never happened in the first place. If we understood our relationship to the planet and to animals and to our environment, this wouldn't have happened, of course. But it did happen and it got us here. So now, Imagine the the beautiful opportunity. We start from our own homes. We start from our own immediate family. We start from our relationship to each other as humans, and then our relationship to animals, to the planet, to the cities, to everything around us, to really focus on what can I do? And, And that goes to what we're willing to sacrifice. I think that's the important question that everybody should be asking. What are you willing to sacrifice of the way you live your life today in order to have the change that you want to see. Because a lot of people want to see changes, but they are not willing to sacrifice anything. And it seems like in this in this moment, it's actually not all sacrifice, right, Michelle? It's like, what are you willing to gain? Totally. You know, how many times in your life have you cooked three meals in a day? How conscious are you of, of the food you're eating, the trash you're throwing out? All these very basic things that are actually not sacrifices, they've become sort of benefits and gains. A hundred percent. And I'm glad you mentioned that, Andrew, because it's like letting go of weight that you've been holding on to. It's like you're, you're, you're losing everything that you're trying to carry on your life. And like, why do you want to carry all that stuff? Just let it go. Just reframe and change your habits 
and understand that if you live in this way, it's, it's going to make more sense. And I, uh, there was a, a, an amazing article about this amazing economist that was saying, it's crazy to understand that we're hitting one of the biggest recessions and a crisis, economical crisis that, that has happened while we're at home consuming only what we need. So if we're consuming only what we need, and this is like the, our basic thing, why are we gonna hit a crisis? What were we buying then if we weren't buying what we needed? So again, it just, this is an amazing moment that's putting in our face everything out there to really spend time understanding it. And I think I really hope that people are doing that because everything is there. It's, it's been put in your face to really have that conversation with your kids that I'm, I'm totally optimistic because I don't know if it's happened to you, Andrew, but at least with my daughter, the conversations have been incredible. Mm, likewise, and uh, yeah. if I would have talked like that with my parents at age 15, which Nina is 15 right now, I would definitely know that it would be a better future for sure. Yeah, it's a huge opportunity in the family unit. I don't think Spencer and I can have a conversation with you without talking about running. Um, <laughs> you maintain this, you know, incredibly rigorous practice. You run many, many miles per week. Yeah. And have run literally tens of thousands in your life, I imagine. What is running about for you? Because it's not what it's about for many people. You have a very unique perspective on running and the reason why you keep such discipline. Tell me how, what your thoughts are on running and how that has played into this period in quarantine. First of all, uh, trying to find balance in your life in some way has always been a constant for me. Even, I mean, when I was growing up, having sports as a balance. I mean, if I wouldn't have had sports when I was playing professional drums in my band, I don't know where I would be right now because I always exercise became kind of the, the counterbalance of, no, no, yeah, I can go to the party, but not as long because I want to do exercise tomorrow. Or I was competing in Taekwondo or I was mountain biking and I was getting myself into all these uh, interesting things. Uh, but when I got to running, it's funny because I've always uh, tried to do things that bring me down a little bit, that, that give me a little bit of grounding and earth. And I started running really late. Actually, my first marathon was in 2015, which was a San Francisco marathon. I, I ran a little bit as, as a way of maintaining myself in a good shape, but it started becoming more serious the, the moment I decided to, to go for long runs which at the beginning I thought was like the most boring thing ever. Like, why would I want to run for such a long time? I mean, put some obstacles or tell me that I have to go and jump on, on certain loops and come back with maybe um, something out of the run. But I started understanding the power or the magic of, of doing long runs and doing long runs and hearing myself. Mm. Everybody that has had a spiritual practice or is curious about that, we all know about that you're not the voices in your head, that you're the, the person having the experience. Yeah, of course, it sounds super beautiful when you learn that in, in, in practice and meditation, but it became like super clear when I was running. And I was like, shut up, I don't wanna hear you, I wanna run. So you start recalibrating and you start reprogramming the things that appear in your mind. And you start saying, wow, my mind is super powerful, but I can actually make peace first with it, understand what it's thinking and why it's thinking that, mm. where are these thoughts coming from, and how can I really change that and understand that if I wanna go run, and if I'm programmed to run uh, for 26 miles in, in, on a marathon, I don't want my head to be boycotting me every mile or every... So it became a, a way of 
making peace with my mind, body, and, 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 and spirit in a way, but also gave me a lot of awareness to my everyday, to my work, to sitting down, uh, designing, sitting down with my daughter. And that became like a super amazing experience, like a mind-blowing experience to me because I understood that, wow, the, your practice is not one hour of yoga. Your practice is not one hour of running. Your practice is your life. Right. And if you don't understand your life as a practice, you got it wrong. <laughs> because how do I start putting all these things that I'm learning into my day-to-day -to, -day to make it be present, be aware, and be conscious of that what you're doing to understand again in these things that we're talking about being part of the problem or part of the solution, how can I really become responsible and aware of the things that I'm trying to get out there, no? And it touches back also as a musician or as an architect or as a family member or as a whatever you want to call it. And so running is crucial to me and in quarantine, more than ever, no? I mean, this idea, I mean, fortunately, Mexico has been one of the places where you can still go out and run. I mean, you have to wear a mask. I go running 5.30 in the morning. There's nobody out there. I run on my own. And it's even running on your own in this isolated, empty streets and cities. It's more interesting as a reflect, uh, reflecting on that specific moment, no? Mm. Well, you mentioned drumming as well, and I know that that's long been a practice of yours. You even posted on Instagram the other week, when the rhythm of life changes, play to the new beat. <laughs> exactly. How does your practice as a drummer connect with your work? Could you elaborate a little bit about rhythm in your life? That's, that's also an interesting observation, Spencer, because when I talk about your life being your practice, when I gave up drumming for architecture, which I mean... It's not that I gave it up, but I mean, I did it professionally for four albums, Virgin Records. I mean, I did the MTV videos. I did the touring. Yeah, you were playing <laughs> arenas in South America. It was enough. It yeah. was okay. That was part of my life. And I needed to move on with some other stuff and other things. But I didn't realize the importance of when I came back to Mexico and I cleaned up my drums said I tuned it up again. I downloaded some iPad uh, lessons because I said, of course, I want to keep on learning and I want to, I'm all dusted. No, I need to really catch up to where I was playing before. When I sat down, I started playing. I said, wow, time, time, rhythm, space, this slowdown and this understanding of time, which for all of us is super important, the relationship of time. When I sat down and started playing, I said, I missed the rhythm of what music did to my life. Mm. So if I can sit down and play the drums and just feel that rhythm when I'm grooving and understand that my life outside of the drums has a certain rhythm and cadence, that's the best lesson that drums can give me at all. Mm. It's not about if I played good and I can jam again. It's like, wow, I really missed that because I, that's something that... When I put my drums in the closet, I kind of put the rhythm within me also in the closet where I said, no, 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 wait, let's bring that out. Mm. Let's, let's make sure that I'm understanding the importance of, of this rhythm and synchronicity to the rest of your life. No, so uh, mm -hmm. It reverberates inside you. Yeah, exactly. I guess to finish, what's giving you the most hope as we come out of this pandemic? Conversations like these, I think that are super relevant. I think that... Again, with, with social media, everybody now outside is, is now a, a yoga teacher, a fitness teacher. Everybody's doing their Instagram lives. Everybody has an opinion. Yes, let's concentrate on the opinions that really will help transform in a much better way our future. 
Let's concentrate on people that are putting things out there to even understand. I mean, this whole collapse of systems that we're seeing worldwide. I mean, in Mexico, we're used to that. We've been in crisis forever. And I grew up with the word crisis and, and resiliency. And, and I'm not scared of that. Mm. But now we're seeing it everywhere. So what does it mean? How is this destabilizing? And in in, in, it's showing us that we are the ones who have to take responsibility, that as a society, we have to reclaim what we want. And I think that we have to reclaim that we're done being afraid, that we're done being afraid of each other, because most of what we are afraid of each other are the systems that put us face to face saying like, be careful, watch out for this. It's like, I don't want to be afraid. I, I want to learn from other cultures. I want to learn from other communities. I want to learn from other people if that makes me better. So mm. thinking of what we're sacrificing in order to get there. And I think that one of the most important aspects is that we're, we wanted our systems to protect us. And we said, yes, I'll give you my freedom as long as you protect me, like, like to our parents. Like, I, I don't want to be afraid. I don't know if I really even want you to protect me. I might even come up with solutions that we can protect ourselves better as a community if we just got along better and understood that as society and, and really back to basics as humans from our hearts, we all want the same thing. We don't want things differently. It's just that tapping into these systems is what makes us. We don't understand the power that we have. And even just one last thought, all, all systems want to divide us, no? So now we're all quarantined and we're kind of isolated, but we're more connected than ever. So we're more connected technologically because we can communicate in many different parts of the world. So if you understood global solidarity from the human perspective and we said, why don't we all let's do this thing out of solidarity as humans, independent on what country you're at, what system or what political agenda. And let's just try to implement it. Let's see if it works and let's just test it. I mean, we would get further than how we're getting now with our uh, actual leaders, which I don't have a lot of faith in. Well, that's a great provocation for the future, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for thanks for coming on today. It was so great to speak with you. Uh, thanks for keeping up the great conversations. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At a Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter, Exploring the Five Senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.